0: Speaking basketball podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And uh, if it's your first time here, it's going to be a party today. We are going to go crazy. Here's the idea behind this show. For the last few years, I have done a top ten video at the end of the season, laying out what I think are the best players in the league. We'll talk about that criteria really quickly before we go. but that video, Cody, has, uh, has crushed me over the last few seasons, and essentially what happens is I do my research, I get to where I am right now, at this moment as of recording, and then I start attempting to make the video, and that takes a week, or two weeks, or three weeks, and then I get another bit of research as I'm making the video, I'm making a graphic on one of the pieces of thing, uh, data I've just researched, and then it just goes crazy. Uh, and so... That video has become painful, and what we're going to try this year is to do it in podcast format. Cody is going to hold my hand and help me. He's going to keep me on track. He's going to guide us through. Uh, So that's what we are going to do today. We're going to talk about the quote-unquote 10 best players in the NBA in 2023. And because this is a very difficult thing to do, the key to understanding of what I'm trying to lay out, I'm, I'm trying to communicate what's in my head about these guys and like where do I think they're good and where are their weak points and how do those value indicators change? Like, why is being such a good playmaker so valuable? How important is defense or defensive versatility or something we'll talk about today massive, massive rim protection? In the playoffs, how valuable do I think these things are based on data, based on trends in the league now, and based on historical information that we have to compare those things to? So the key to this list, Cody, as longtime listeners know, is ranges. I'm going to be be forced to say this person's 10th, this person's 9th, this person's 8th if I have to choose. But I'm not joking when I say I could have this person as high as 5th or I could have them as low as 12th. That is the essence of how comfortable I am pinpointing a player's value. You know, I I lay it all out. I compare it to all these hundreds of other seasons that I have thousands at this point of other seasons that I've tried to evaluate historically. And I say, oh, it could be a little bit better than that Paul Pierce season from 2008. It could be a, a little bit worse than that LeBron James 2015 defensive season. And that range in my head is the final product that you're going to see. We are going to start with players at essentially full health. I say essentially because there's one player that, that's actually very difficult to talk about this season. We'll get to him at some point, but we're going to start assuming that players are at full health. And the way I think about best player is who helps a team win the championship the most In a reasonable situation, meaning we're not just looking at the one team that they're playing on, we're thinking about how would this player impact a majority of playoff teams? How would this player uh, in a reasonable situation with a reasonable roster construction around him change the odds of your team winning a title, which is to say your team winning four playoff series, four best of seven playoff series in 2023? Am I forgetting anything, Cody? Do you want to say anything? Do you, want, do you want to talk to the basketball gods before we launch in? Because we are about to uh, get spicy. People will be upset. Just a reminder, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just sharing what I've learned over the year. And, uh, and we'll go from there.
1: If there's anything I've learned when it comes to like prepping for drafts, like the NBA draft and prepping for like this list, I think it's time for us to try and transcend the list. There needs to be like a, a horizontal list, like a multi dimensional list that somehow branches off and answers these different things. Because when you're just like a this person's above this person it throws everything into flux. makes everyone just go completely crazy. So the ranges thing, I think is a really important concept because it's we're not locking in. You're not going to be locking in like, oh, this person's number three, therefore they are 100% of the time better than the person that's in number four or maybe even number five or number six because those ranges could go a couple of lengths. So I think that is a key component to markdown. The other thing is you say you want a player that's going to help you win the championship. That means that players that like if you toss them on a bad team. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this player is really good because they can get a 20 win team to 37 wins. It's like, great. That's not getting you anywhere near championship. So you actually need the skills they are going to be building on neutral level teams and higher level teams more than players that are going to fit on a lower level team and just suck up some offensive load in a way that's going to uh, juice up their offense to make them look better than they actually are.
0: That's a great point. We should call it the top 10 Tesseract, have like an interstellar library <laughs> where you're constantly thinking about different dimensions where the players could be in different orders, because that's actually kind of how it feels in my head. The goal is to sort of roughly shape out the groups and where they need to be, but uh, tiers even are too rigid for that because, as we'll talk about, some players have different levels of uncertainties for me. Some players have wider or narrower ranges. The goal with the ranges as well is for me not to have a big reaction to the single season or the last playoff series or two That I just saw. And I think that's a big change or a big difference from a lot of people's lists. Because last year you say, Nikola Jokic, you can't win with him. He's a terrible defender. He's he has all these disappointments. He can't go far in the postseason. And then you say this season, Nikola Jokic, he's unstoppable. He might be the best offensive player ever. Who's going to take him away? And I have seen this same thing over and over and over again. With players, whether it's Jokic, uh, whether it's Giannis, your from your Milwaukee Bucks, Cody, his his playoff failures, quote unquote failures in 2019 and 2020, and then closing the season in 2021 with a 50 point game. We've even seen it to some degree with Steph Curry, uh, going back to 2016, the Durant Finals MVPs, and then last season. So. That is a big thing for me to think about. I'm not just looking at this one series or this one postseason that makes a player look really good or look bad. Um, Anything else? Shall we begin?
1: Yeah, I think that's a tricky aspect of it because you are talking about this season, but you also are trying to get as much of a sample size as possible. So you naturally kind of bring in previous seasons and previous performances. So instead of being like what we just saw completely negates everything that we know about this player, no, it, it informs everything else that we've done. And you try and mold that together. And I think that whole process can get murky at times. This we'll see with a couple guys, because I think there's a couple really informative players we're going to be talking about for this philosophy.
0: Yeah. There is also the concept. and It's going to lead us into the list here of, I need more data. There's a, little, there's a little earmark of like, what did I just see? Was that sample size convincing enough for me to think that this player has either leveled up or fallen off? You know, If you're in the heart of your career, I do think for the most part, players are relatively consistent in their aging curve. When you're in your prime, you don't change too much overnight. From season to season, if I think you're really good outside of injury or some off-court thing, you're going to be in a similar spot during your prime. The hard part, of course, is as players are on the front end of their aging curve and leveling up, or as they get older and level down, trying to make sense of what we just saw. And that leads us to the number 10 position. And one player I considered for the number 10 position was Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns. And that relates to what we were just talking about, because, Cody, Devin Booker shot the ball out of his mind in the playoffs this year. I was blown away. Absolutely incredible shooting performance. And the question is, is that more consistent with how Devin Booker can play basketball at the highest levels going forward for the rest of his career or was it just a heater? Was he was he just on a sort of hot streak of shooting and either way, we know he's not going to shoot like that forever. Because let me give you the numbers. He was 13 of 28 on his open threes, 7 of 11 on his wide open threes. So he shot 51%, 20 of 39, on his open or wide open threes. 51% on those threes. So his career is closer to 40%. My question in my head is, are you legitimately 42 or 45% on those shots now? Or did you just blip all the way up from 40% and you're going to fall all the way back down? And if you kept playing that would fall down, and when you play next season, it will fall down. So I'm waiting for a little more data. You may be thinking 39 threes isn't a lot of threes. He also had 53 wide open or open twos on his jump shots in that uh, playoff run. He made 64% of those, 64% of his open or wide open twos. So this was a major, major heater from Devin Booker. And the thing that I like that makes me think, okay, this could be a legit improvement offensively, is that his balance and the way he got to his shots was very consistent, very smooth, very under controlled. The release, the elevation, it reminded me a little, dare I say, of Michael Jordan in how he was so quick to get to a sweet spot, elevate and get a clean release. And in Booker's case, he was just hitting the middle of the net, especially in the Uh, Denver series over and over and over again. So to me, when I go to make an evaluation about this, I say, okay, if this is legitimate and I come back in a year and I say, oh, this is the first time he leveled up or not the first time, but there was a legit leveling up of his offense here. I would have him at a higher range. My range for him, considering him for number 10 was as high as eight. And kind of, we're only going to talk about 12 players, so let's say as low as 12 in that range. But if that offensive shooting is a legit improvement and it's more consistent, then I would have him a level or two. He, he would be competing with the players at number seven or number six, roughly, in that range. So he's a great example of someone I need more data on. And where I don't need more data is the defensive side. I thought he was a sturdier, stronger defender this season, where I've thought he's more of a negative in the past. I see him more around a neutral. I thought he had good defensive possessions during the playoffs at times. So Devin Booker, not quite if I had to pick my number 10 guy, but he's the first guy I considered.
1: I think overall, too, and you hit on it with the defensive thing because defense was one of the things that's held him back in previous seasons. I think last season we started seeing more of an improvement this season. It's really been solidified. But overall, I just thought this was his best season. Like you said, the balance, I think he would prefer the Kobe comparison. I think he's a big Kobe guy. He has a lot of Kobe stories, I'm pretty sure. So I think he would like that in terms of the balance. But I'm sure he'll he'll settle with the Michael Jordan comparison with the pull-up jumper. But I just thought his, his attacking game, too, the way he was able to drive, open up the offense. That way was really helpful. Um, Ultimately, I do want to bring up something else with him, but in comparison with somebody else, that's going to be coming up in the top 10. So I'm actually going to save the second part of my Devin Booker conversation for when we talk about this other player that I think is a really interesting contrast to Booker. So uh, yeah,
0: sounds good. And also let me quickly correct. He was 43% in the last three regular seasons on his wide open threes, but just 33% on his pull up threes. So essentially what I'm saying here is if there's a leveling up in the shooting area, the pull-up shots, uh, there's been an idea that he's a really, really great shooter for a long time, and it just hasn't been true. If you quiz people on you know, who's a better shooter on their open shots, on all their outside shooting indicators, Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker, most people say Booker, and the answer for a long time has been Mitchell. I just want to uh, clarify that. Cody, the other player that I considered for the number 10 spot but went in a different direction, and this is a difficult player to discuss for all kinds of reasons, is your favorite player of all time, LeBron James. Ooh. Did you not expect me to say that?
1: Uh, no, I oh, actually didn't expect that. So was very much... I was expecting a different player to come up right now. Now,
0: now. the fun begins on this list. Um, LeBron, for me, again, someone who I had as high as eighth, but I think the foot injury took away a little bit too much of his game. I was actually still impressed with his positional defense and awareness and and the way he defended. I don't think it was quite as impressive to me as the 2020 championship run in the last few years of his career, the, the sort of second half of the 30s, LeBron has done a great job of using his size, his body, his basketball computer, and his head to really provide great backline presence defensively for his teams in these postseason series where he has an understanding of what the other team is trying to do. But that foot injury limited his movement. It became more of an issue on the offensive end. And when you look at the numbers – uh, 23 points per 75 on just plus 1%, true shooting, 8 drives uh, per 75 in the playoffs. These, these are indicators of less offensive scoring pressure. And while I thought he was good about attacking post-mismatches at times, and of course we all know how great he is in transition, his shot is another thing. Like, what was that because of the ankle? His shot really left him in the playoffs. So there was just a lot of uncertainty for me with LeBron about how to evaluate him, knowing that he played through an injury that not everyone would play through. And at the end of the day, I tried to evaluate the level of play I saw in the playoff rounds, and it just was sort of this back-of-the-top top tennis. It doesn't have the same offensive... Uh, pop and value that I think he's had in the past, and that was the big difference for me.
1: Okay, so you are ultimately factoring in the fact that he was playing through some kind of a foot injury during the
0: playoffs. I, I am I am evaluating him uh, with the foot injury because he just played. It's an abnormal thing. Normally, he would be out and then maybe recover, but instead of getting surgery, he actually just played for a month and change or whatever it is on that foot injury, so I am evaluating that level of play in this instance versus trying to figure out what playoff LeBron would be based on regular season pre-foot injury. LeBron, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think based on that, the 11 ranking makes a lot more sense to me because I was trying to think about like the regular season. We saw a much different, much bounced LeBron, but even something, an indicator that jumped out to me was the fact that according to your database in the playoffs is net on off was negative 7.2. So the Lakers were actually seven points better when he was on the bench during the playoffs, which is just something you have not seen with LeBron during the playoffs before.
0: Yeah, you never see that. In fact, if you rope in his 2021, um, he's still plus six on off in a three-year playoff sample because we're so used to seeing that. But his indicators, his offensive box numbers, uh, and just, I thought, his general presence on the floor for the Lakers on offense wasn't quite what we've seen. And to your point, if you had something earlier in the regular season, or even the way I evaluated him last year, based on his regular season, I think he would have had enough offensive value to move up a few spots to expand that range. And he'd probably be someone I picked in the top 10. But looking at just how he played with the foot injury wasn't quite enough for me.
1: Okay. Yeah, and then looking at his offensive load, which is like the percentage that he's involved with offensive plays, it's down to a forty one point seven in your day. That's just that's just not even a the same LeBron that we're used to seeing at all. It's a completely different player. So, you know, I think I see where you're coming from. I don't like it but I'll I'll accept it right now.
0: I'm so glad you brought up that number because I think that number encapsulates everything I'm talking about here. In the past, he's someone who does all the heavy lifting. He has the ball a lot. He might have the ball more in the playoffs when it calls for it. And this season, as we'll talk about in a second, the Lakers, especially in key playoff moments, were willing to let other guys run, pick, and roll, or be the primary center of the offense. And that's certainly no knock on LeBron. I just think it's a reflection of how it was harder for him to pressure defenses with his offensive advantages during the playoffs this year. And another key indicator for that is the fact that the Lakers' offense was below what we would expect in the postseason. Uh, Their relative offensive efficiency compared to their opponent's defense was minus 1.1. It's one point worse than those defenses allowed in the regular season in terms of points per 100. So those were guys I considered for the top 10 spot that did not quite make it. Cody, my number 10 that I ended up going with And we're in a similar range of player, because if you look at the range, I had him as high as 8 in this group, and I can't quite get him down to 12. As a reminder, the way I do ranges is I hold all the other players' values fixed that I finalize, and then I look at the high and low end of what I think is reasonable for a player without getting too philosophical and saying, wow, maybe there's a really small chance that he could be the best player ever. I'm trying to keep it uh, reasonable and, and draw some boundaries, put some lines around these things. So I actually think I'm a little more confident about this player's range and his low end because I've seen him for so long because he is a veteran at number 10. I went with Damian Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers, who I think is one of the five or six best offensive players in the league, let's say. The question in my head with Lillard is how different is this season compared to, say, the burst he had at the end of 2020, what we saw in 2021 as he carried through. Now, he was injured last year. He missed a ton of time. But again, if you look at the indicators, they are very similar statistically, to where he's been. In 2020, his box plus minus in our model was 4.7. His offensive box plus minus was 4.2. If you look at 2021, his box plus minus was 4.6. His offensive box plus minus was 4.3. If you go to this season, his box plus minus was 4.5. If you look at his offensive box plus minus, it was 4.4. 4. So I think you're talking about a three, at least a three year sample of Damian Lillard playing at this level. We did a video about it back in 2020 at the end of the year, talking about increase in range, talking about how he's actually using the mid range a little bit less and getting to the basket more, mixing in the pull up three and getting to the basket. His passing seems to kind of have peaked in this pretty good, like well above average area that fits with his long range shooting, his off the dribble game. And in fact, this season, a big thing for Lillard was his improvement in driving efficiency. He took 15 drives per 75 possessions, which was a career high, Um, excuse me, 16 drives, which was a career high at 67% true shooting percentage. That's been about a four, five, 6% jump compared to previous seasons. Now, again, in my head, how much of that is him learning the angles and being better about setting up people with his shot fake versus improved spacing from the Blazers? For instance, Yusuf Nurkic, his center, now shoots threes, so he's a little bit more of a spacer and a popping threat. Jeremy Grant is there, and they had more shooters on the court, I thought, compared to previous seasons where you had lineups like Ennis Canner, Carmelo Anthony, Robert Covington, Larry Nance. Uh, Hassan Whiteside, Kent Bazemore, players like that. So again, the big question in my head is how much has Lillard improved in the last few years? I think maybe just a little bit. And you could say this is his best offensive season. But I do think we're consistently looking at a similar type of player from the last few seasons on offense. And then defensively, I think he's one of the worst players on this group, which which pulls him back. And and that sort of leaves me with... Incidentally, it actually leaves me with a relatively narrow range, Cody, because I'm not saying, oh, could he be like an all-time defender or a pretty good defender? It's more like, nah, I think he's a negative defender. There's not too much wiggle room in my head on that side of the ball. And then on offense, as I said, um, we're looking at a multi-year sample of really good regular season offense. And the question then becomes... Do we get concerned about some of the drops we've seen in the postseason from him that that prevent him from being like the top two, top three offensive players in the NBA?
1: To put some of those offensive numbers into perspective, you talked about his box plus minus, his offensive box plus minus. If you go back to like 2019, he's basically 98th or 99th percentile in almost every advanced offensive metric. That's out there. You go to the database, you go every year from 2019, not counting 2022 when he had that injury that he really struggled with. 2023 is the exact same way. I think his on-court offensive rating for the team is like 96th percentile. So we're talking literally the top, whatever number you want to throw out there, offensive players. There's one thing that makes me a little uncomfortable with Damian Lillard because the numbers are incredible. It blows my mind. I definitely had him right in this range as well. But how do you properly evaluate these guys that have not been in the playoffs for the last two seasons when there are some players that feel like they're going to be dinged because we actually have more playoff data for them. So how do you go about taking somebody like Lillard, who's only played 10 playoff games this decade?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because I alluded to it at the end of what I was saying. Lillard has had a number of series against good defenses where he's struggled. Has that been just because he doesn't have the team to help him? I think that's a fair question. But pressure on the ball, hedging, and the pick and roll when you have a second defender outright trapping him—that has created some problems as well as I think uh, having elite defenders with range and size. We saw this in going going way back to 2018 with Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis in New Orleans on him. So there's been a level of inconsistency in the postseason that concerns me relative to some of the regular season stats we've seen. But in a way, Cody, that's my answer to this question. I think you have to try to think about what you're seeing with the player and his skills throughout the regular season. Say, has he added something that's going to make him more bulletproof in the playoffs? And if the answer is no... I'm going to fall back more on, let's say, the inconsistencies we've seen in the postseason. And I think that's the right way to describe it because Lillard also has great playoff moments against, uh, against Oklahoma City. We all know the, the wave to Paul George, but I'm even thinking of 2021. You alluded to it. He's only played 248 postseason minutes in the last three years. They all came in 2021, and he had a wonderful offensive series, even in the bubble where there were a little more struggles against the Lakers. Again, the pesky Anthony Davis showing up at the top of the pick and roll in a defensive scheme. But even in that series, before he finally left, I think with a knee injury, he had one or two really explosive shooting games because that outside shooting, that deep pull-up shooting, allows him to hit five, six, seven threes in a game with good efficiency. So that, to me, is the range. But I think we've seen it enough that – To the real spirit of your question, it would take him coming back and really looking different against the best defenses in the 2024 playoffs for me to think we need to shift our whole perception of this particular time period with Damian Lillard.
1: Okay. I think that makes sense. And what did you say you could get his his high end to? Did you say the eight range? Eight.
0: Yes. Yes. So there's a group of players here that I think are sort of in a similar range. And then we'll slowly jump up to the to the very best players from there as we work our way through the list.
1: Okay. now both times that you said the last two names, I've literally written down uh, in preparation for a name. And you haven't said that name. So I'm interested to see because I think I'm possibly lower on this guy. Then you. So let's let's see if he's next.
0: Interesting. Um, Well, at number nine, as we continue to move on in this same group, and this player, to put it in perspective, when I try to lay out a numerical evaluation to kind of guide myself this player and Lillard were almost identical. So we are now at one of these points where I'm just picking a name to say, ah, well, if you put a gun to my head, I have to pick a name. But this is truly where the ranges are interesting because one, I could flip a coin on these players. Two, whatever team you put these players on, one team might look better. I might say, oh, for this team construction, I want Lillard. For this team construction, I want my number nine. And without further ado, that number nine... Is Jimmy Butler. Is that the player
1: you were thinking of? That was the name I've been waiting for the last couple of times.
0: Yeah. And he's really a fascinating player. I wonder how long we're going to talk about him because he, I said this before, I don't think of Butler as an offensive number one, meaning championship level offense. Can you just put him out there and create enough pressure on the defense? to get an elite playoff offense with a reasonable team around him. I don't really think that's his strength. I don't really think that's his style, but he has these explosive moments. He is a good passer. He's a pretty good playmaker. And it's very interesting to kind of look at the leaders in 35-point games in the playoffs over the last three years. Butler has 10 of them. He has 10 35-point games in the playoffs In the last three years, that means he's been doing it 23% of the time. And for comparison, uh, for names we've already mentioned, Devin Booker has done it 26% of the time. If we look at other players around the entire league, Luka Doncic has done it 41% of the time. Nikola Jokic has done it 29% of the time. Trey Young and Kevin Durant, 26% of the time. And Jamal Murray has done it 20% of the time. So, 23% of the time for Butler, I think, is reflective of these explosive moments. It gets a little trickier when you start to look at the overall offensive package and say, is he an elite on ball creator? Not really. He's a good passer. I really love him off-ball, cutting and finding little spaces and sneaking in for offensive rebounds. And he's a very cerebral player, as we detailed in that video. And I think, Cody, that has helped me to understand why there are these times when he can go for 35, 40 points and explode and find a real rhythm against a defense or certain defenders. And then there are other times where he struggles to create separation, struggles to have confidence in the shot— doesn't traditionally put pressure on the basket with strides and streaking you know, power dribbles down the lane and taking off and finishing. finishing. We've talked about how he loves to use the jump stop. I've called him jump stop Jimmy. So he's a really interesting player in that sense. And then defensively, I do think he's still really, really good defensively. Excellent in passing lanes. Just devastating at times in passing lanes. Good at understanding and reading the coverages that are occurring out there. Really good hands, tremendous jumping in and digging and creating havoc. We've seen him cause a lot of problems for the Jays in Boston in the last two playoffs because of that. So the overall result of that, to me, is a what we would think in this level, a pretty good offensive player and a very good defensive wing, and that lands you right about here.
1: So, okay, I guess the thing about Jimmy – is that, to me, he kind of reminds me of Drew Holiday, where if you just like take what you expect his impact to be from his offense and his defense, and you kind of add them together... There's something missing. There's like another level that he adds to the team that it's not quite measurable. There's like a, an immeasurable impact that he brings to it. And I don't know how to say it. And to me, that's the best argument for Jimmy Butler. And I, it's like the, the great beyond of how I don't know how to explore these player valuations. Because Ben, here are some numbers that when I ask you, I'm like, Ben, is a top 10 player, is this describing a top 10 player? I'm not sure that you would say so, because these are some of Jimmy's numbers from the 2023 playoffs. He had a negative 1.6 net rating when he was on the court. He had a negative 11 net on-off. He was worse than 50th percentile in mid-range field goal percentage, wide open three-point percentage, and rim field goal percentage, and he's under the 30th percentile in terms of shots defended within six feet and the percentage that he changes opposing shots within six feet. I don't know what to do with that. None of those add up to me to be a guy that is going to be quite this high. You, call, you can talk about the great defensive impact that he has, but when you even look at somebody like LeBron, whose uh, postseason rim protection numbers I think far outweigh Jimmy Butler's impact, um, I don't know. I'm not quite as convinced. And I, I was somebody that like during like the conference finals, I'm like, Jimmy Butler might be like a top five, top six player in the league. But now that it's all over and I'm looking back, I don't know, Ben. I don't know, unless you're making the the Drew Holiday, he brings something else that I just just don't know how to measure. I'm not super convinced by him. Those
0: numbers were from this postseason, correct?
1: Yes, that's from this postseason. Okay,
0: so if we look at a larger sample, it's a great example of trying to get a larger sample. In the last three years, the Heat have been two and a half points better with Butler on the bench than on the floor. Now, do I look at that and think it is really damning? Mm, Not in the sense of this range of player. I do think it's damning if you think I'm watching the game when Butler goes in, he's a miracle worker. And when he goes out, Miami falls apart without him because that has not been what's happened in the postseason. Let me ask you a question, Cody. Which of which postseason do you think Jimmy Butler had better stats? The 2022 postseason or the 2023 postseason?
1: Uh, I think off the top of my head, I feel like it'd be 2022.
0: 2022 is the correct answer. I gave you too much information about yeah. that trap, but I think it's counterintuitive in the sense that he had all these big moments in this playoffs. He made the run to the finals with Miami, but if you look at the numbers, um, they were better last post season. So, I think you have a good sample of Jimmy in Miami playing in a similar style. And I don't really ever think that style gets you to the top four, five, six players that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But at the same time, I've become convinced enough with the things that I've detailed on Jimmy Butler's content that we've made in videos that his offensive game is good enough and his defensive game is good enough. When you put those two together, This is a really nice piece on championship teams because he can execute at a high level. He's incredibly cerebral. He knows what's going on in the scheme. And I think that's just a really good overall playoff basketball player who, again, if I had to choose in a vacuum between him and Lillard, I think I would choose Butler, but it's a coin flip. I ended up almost evaluating them identically, and I have them both in this eight to 12 range. The last player in this range and the player at the top for me, because I do think his high end in my head gets a little bit higher than the other guys we've talked about is Jason Tatum from the Boston Celtics. Interestingly, I thought Tatum outplayed Butler for large stretches of the Eastern conference finals. I was somewhat influenced by that. Now it might be counterintuitive to people to say, you're taking a player who was eliminated by the guy before. Why wouldn't you give the nod to Butler if his team won? Um, I'm trying to separate the team performance from the individual playoff performance of of a player that we're talking about. And one of the things you can look at is something like the wide open three-point shooting of his teammates. And when you do that, out of all the series we have, shooting tracking data for, going back in the last decade, Cody, no series has had a more unexpected shooting outcome than the 2023 Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Heat. We may talk about this more at some point in a summer episode when we wax poetic about what that means and how we make sense of it, but the Heat made about 50% of their open or wide open threes, most of those independent of Jimmy Butler. So Jimmy Butler may be setting up some of his teammates for those shots, but they're the ones making 50% of them instead of the expected 37, 38, 39%, whatever it is, depending on the player. And with the Celtics, They were a better shooting team in the regular season, and they made 33% of them. They actually had something like 50 or 60 more open threes in that series, and they made seven fewer than Miami. And that was the opposite of what all of the prior shooting numbers from those players would predict. So to me, I'm trying to separate How is Tatum's decision-making? How is his playmaking? How is his uh, shot selection and so on and so forth from did Grant Williams make or miss a wide-open corner three? And to me, I like Tatum a little bit more as a primary offensive initiator. Obviously, he's a better shooter off the ball, so I do like how that fits a little bit with other players. But as a primary offensive initiator, I think his ball handling, his playmaking, his decision-making has come along. So I do think he has kind of a higher ceiling there. We saw it with the Game 7 performance against Philadelphia in the prior round, setting a record with 51 points where he just starts puncturing Joel Embiid's drop defense, using the pull-up three, and then learning how to mix that in with playmaking or drives to the basket. As needed. And then defensively, I actually don't think there's much of a difference between these two players defensively. This is now multiple postseasons in a row. We've seen Jason Tatum use his length around the nail, switch onto bigger wings, bother. He did it to Butler in a number of possessions in the middle of that series. And provides some of Cody's favorite thing. If you're new around here, we have a bingo card, and that is rim protection, especially from the wing position. Jason Tatum gives you that. I think he's a fantastic wing defender. If I had to pick, I'd probably I'd probably side with Butler's value, maybe a little bit, but they're very similar to me defensively, and the total of that is two similar players. But Tatum, I think, is the first guy here that I could say maybe I could put into the seven spot, so his range for me was a little higher. He's 7-12, to 12, and that's why he's at the top of this list, essentially.
1: I've got a question about Tatum. The first question I was going to ask was comparing him with Butler's defense, so I'm glad you addressed that. Um, the other question I have, how would you compare Tatum to himself, maybe even from last season? Because from my eye, it doesn't necessarily feel like he's that much better in any area, and I want to know if you agree with me on that.
0: Very similar. The only thing that I think could be a little bit of an uptick, and we talked about it in a video for the NBA app at the beginning of the season, is his rim finishing. His rim finishing has always been kind of an issue for him. Uh, In a sense, much like Butler, doesn't have the traditional core, fluid, stride, take off and finish with one hand around the basket, but I thought his balance and his setups of his shots around the hoop were better. It was a career high in drives. He went up to 11 drives this year per 75 possessions. That puts him in the 79th percentile. And he shot 59% uh, in true shooting on those drives, which moved him up to the 73rd percentile. He used to be kind of middle of the road or slightly below average. And that's the one thing, Cody, I would say that I think he's improved on a little bit this year that might move the needle on his offensive game just a touch.
1: Okay. Okay. I'm really excited about this next group, end because I think this is the uh, the death gauntlet, so to speak. I think these next few people are going to get some of the folks the most enraged, because there's a few different combinations of players you could be saying coming up here.
0: This is absolutely the death gauntlet where players start to get very close together. And in fact, I have a group of players that are almost identical that I could genuinely go in any order. But we haven't quite hit that yet, because at number seven, we might get stuck on this guy. Very controversial, very interesting. I have Luka Doncic at number seven from the Dallas Mavericks. You are celebrating before I go into my explanation. Why Why are you touchdown signaling?
1: This is, yeah, field, good field goal. I don't, 60 yards, so that might be really good. Who knows? Uh, that's who I had at number seven, and I was wondering if we were going to disagree on this. So uh, go go off on your, your Luka Doncic takes.
0: So Luka's range to me is still only in this sort of six to eight group because I have a I have a set of players that are very similar that I don't really feel comfortable yet saying his high end range puts him there going to talk about why in a second and then the low end similarly he's better to me than the guys we just talked about and his questions don't really bring him too far down in that group so Luca is a six to eight range to me and I mentioned it earlier Cody He has hit 35-point games in 40% of his playoff games. He didn't play in the playoffs this year. But boy, his postseason track record, even going back to 2020, has been spectacular. And I also looked at 30-point games, something a little bit more of a consistency barometer. And in 30-point games in the last three postseasons, no one has done it more frequently than Luka Doncic. He's done it 64% of his playoff games He's hit 30 points. There's only a few guys that have ever done it or in that time period have done it more than 50% of the time. Giannis did it 58% of the time. Kawhi Leonard did it 54% of the time. He's only played 13 playoff games. Poor Kawhi. We'll talk about him in a second. Donovan Mitchell, 52, and Stefan Jokic did it 51% of the time. So Luka has had some very big playoff games. And last season, of course, a great run. In that time period, and this is the key, his teams have been 11 points per 100 better with him on the court in the postseason than when he went to the bench. He has one of, I think, a top 30 all-time box plus minus in our model in the postseason in that two-year stretch at plus 7.3, averaging 34 points per 75 uh, on plus 2% efficiency, a little better than league average efficiency. That's the reason why he's up here in this conversation. The question is, is he too ball dominant? Can he fit with other players? Is there a ceiling on that? And specifically this season, since he did not get to play in the playoffs, is there, is there reason to think he's better than he was last year or worse last year? I think for me, offensively, you can make the argument that 2023 was Luka Doncic's best offensive season, or certainly displayed the skills to be his best offensive peak. He added more to the post game. We talked about that in a video at the beginning of the year. He has slightly fewer drives, but he is unbelievable at using his body and carving out space and using his size both in the regular season and in the postseason against elite defenses, and that's huge. And he was still in the 98th percentile on drive volume this season and the 93rd percentile on drive efficiency. Oh, my God to paraphrase Bill Walton after making an observation about any generic beard in the crowd. Um, He is also now because of that post game and because of what we talked about, really, really dangerous in the mid range. And this is another sort of counter skill that I think is really valuable in the playoffs as a primary offensive weapon, nine mid range shots per 75 at 52% shooting this season. Cody, that is also in the 94th percentile. So I do think there are really good arguments. His one number metrics this season were all career highs except for his box plus minus, which was 0.1 points better in 2020. So across the board, I think there's a good argument. This was or is in a sense the best offensive version, the most skilled offensive version of this great heliocentric singular offensive force. Defensively, I thought, He was worse this season than he was last year. And the big thing is, I thought, his conditioning, his movement, uh, his speed, his shape, his engagement. I think they've all waned. I think that is a big issue to me right now with his impact. And if you go back and look at 2021 film and you compare it to 2023 film, he is noticeably quicker in the past than he is today. And I think that hurts him on defense where he doesn't have amazing hands like uh, Nikola Jokic. He doesn't have a vertical presence as a six, seven, six, eight wing like Jason Tatum. So the defense is bringing him back. And then offensively with how, however great all these things are, there's still the big question of what's the fit, what's the ideal teammate and, does he just need better defenders around him and better shooters? And you have a similar situation that we saw with LeBron and kind of 3 and D, and how do you build around a guy like this? Or is there something else?
1: And Ed, do you want to answer that? Because I think that's a great question. It came from, from Tricky Knight on the Thinking Basketball Discord. If you had to, you can either do it in a lab, make the ideal teammate, or pluck somebody away from NBA. Any NBA team. So two tough words to say together. What's the kind of player that would offensively fit well, or I guess altogether fit well next to Luka without imagining like a full team just built around him? I think wings
0: that can do stuff like uh, Jalen Brown or players like Drew Holiday that we talked about. I think guys that can shoot at least a little bit, if not well, can defend, and then can do a little with the basketball. Similarly there could be some big men that fit really well with him. Anthony Davis and that mold. Giannis Antetokounmpo. obviously those are superstars, but just players that provide a lot of defensive value and could pair in one dimension of Luka's pick and roll game. What Dallas has done is they said... Dwight Powell, when you're in there, you set screens and dive to the basket. Maxi Kleba, when you're in there, you set screens and pop to the three-point line. So they are pick-and-roll partners, but they're relatively limited compared to what we would think of as having really good teammates around you. And I personally think that's what happened with Luka this year in Dallas, Cody. I think you just you take away Brunson, you lose a second... Ball handler, a second creator, someone who can run the offense when Luca goes to the bench. You take away Spencer Dinwiddie at the end of the year, now you lose another ball handler. Then they go really small when they get rid of Dorian Finney-Smith, who was a defensive Swiss Army knife. I think they just gutted too many pieces. And for me, in a still in a wait-and-see, I don't know how to answer that question yet mode, I'm, my instinct from what I see still tells me this is more about the team than anything with Luca, but Luca clearly plays in a style where you need to fit around his ball dominance, and I would love to see him add some off-ball game going forward, and I think the simplest way to do that is just for him to level up his shot as he gets into his mid-20s.
1: I was going to ask you that. If you had to choose for his off-ball value, would you actually say that he could make the easiest... Uh, progression by just changing his mentality and doing a little bit more movement off ball? Or do you think the shooting is probably the key that he should focus on to, to improve his offense?
0: I think the shooting is maybe the simplest way in the sense of it's just going to tug on the defense when he doesn't have the ball. But the conditioning is also part of it because you have to have a motor without the ball. You have to want to move and cut. And in his case, I think if he were to Cut and move and flash in positions around the basket. He could seal defenders, use his size, and go to that post mid game that he's developed. What what he does instead, and Trey Young does it as well, is when they give up the ball, they then stand in place and hope to get the ball back. And if they move, Cody, they often move back toward the ball, thirty five feet away, to get the ball back and then reset the pick and roll game. And I think without, especially without having good teammates that can dynamically create an attack and move and kick it, um, then I think that sort of dwindles the offensive potency, if you will.
1: I don't know if this gets too much into the weeds, so just take your machete and cut away the weeds if you need to here. But when you have a guy that's just a maestro on offense, like there's no denying this is one of the best Helio offensive players we've ever seen. When he has the ball, it's it's like some of the passes that this guy makes. It's just unbelievable. His strength driving to the rim is basically unmatched in the league. How do you factor in the fact that he has some of these issues where he like, just likes walking towards the ball or doesn't like to be off ball in general or just dominates the ball so much. How does that factor into your, your thought process here?
0: To me, it makes me a little concerned about fit with other players who are going to need the ball or need a more dynamic movement structure than just a spread pick and roll. Because every time you do that, you bleed time off the clock and bleeding time off the clock lowers your offensive efficiency. But that's only a small thing Counterbalancing how great he already is on offense. I think you said it very well. If I were to stack up my all time level offensive players and I was doing that in evaluating this Luca season, I'm not comfortable once you get to like six, seven, eight names going, oh, yeah, that guy's clearly better than Luca Doncic on offense. So I think it's just a natural trade off of being a ball-dominant player because he is a great ball-dominant player. We saw a great run in the playoffs last season. And I think especially if he gets in shape and buttons up some of the things defensively, that's going to make a huge difference. And that's what I'm looking for going forward. So for me, there's still some uncertainty with his range, but I'm not super comfortable getting him much past our number six. So let's say his range is six to eight. My number six... And here's where it gets super fun because I don't know if, if how you feel about this player, but number six on my list was Anthony Davis hey. of the Los Angeles Lakers. Did you? Where did you have him?
1: I actually had him uh, in the same range, but I had him at five here. So I'm interested to see where you're going to be putting number six.
0: Yes. Now, Davis's range is fascinating to me. Um, we'll talk about it in a second. The short of it is I thought this was a defensive tour de force by him this season and especially in the playoffs and comparing it to his 2020 defensive performance was really interesting because i think stylistically in the abstract theoretically there are things about his 2020 playoff performance as a swiss army knife that make you think anthony davis in the bubble defensively he wasn't as good as that but I'm actually not sure. I actually think if I had to pick impact-wise in the league, this year's Anthony Davis to me is even more impactful than bubble Anthony Davis because his rim protection, his timing, Cody, his size around the basket, it changed everything from day one. The Memphis series, the first quarter of that playoff game, I was blown away. He carried it through basically all three rounds. You can talk to me about Denver and Jokic in a second, but the numbers are absolutely incredible on shots defended around the basket, on what happens when he went to the bench. I think without Davis and without that massive, massive defensive driver, this Los Angeles team isn't actually that good. I think that's how powerful the defense can be when the teams were fairly close together like they were. I don't think they're a conference finalist. I don't think they're a conference semifinalist. I'm not even sure they get to the first round of the playoffs with Anthony Davis on the sidelines replaced by a typical starter player. With him, I mean, that even though they were swept by Denver, that was a competitive series to me. And it was not outside the realm of possibility that the Lakers could have won that series. And to me, they would be the easy pick against the Heat in the finals. So you were very close to looking at two healthy championships, uh, two championships in his last two healthy postseasons, again, centered around this defense. Now, offensively, that's a harder task because he's not quite as quick and nimble as he was in the past, takes away some of his perimeter shooting, passing and transition playmaking, but he did have... Some of the craziest roll gravity this season that I've ever seen, both in the playoffs and regular season, with teams tailoring their defense to like, we're going to bring a second player over into the paint just to tag Anthony Davis so he can't roll freely to the basket. Obviously, there's some offensive rebounding, some lob finishing, some off-ball game, some post-game. At the end of the day, you get 22 points on plus 2% Efficiency, it's okay. It's not an offensive centerpiece. We've talked about some of these second-level offensive players with Jason Tatum, with Jimmy Butler. I don't think he was as good as those guys. I think he's not quite at that level. But the range of what to do with his offense is interesting because, Cody, we mentioned it with LeBron James. In the playoffs, the Lakers at times had a lot of success with Austin Reeves on-ball running pick-and-roll, Rui Hachimura, even Lonnie Walker. Anthony Davis was the other guy involved in that dance a lot of the time. And because of the dynamics of his screen and roll game, I think he makes it a little bit easier for those ball handlers. So the combination of that, that offense, and especially that defense, is enough to get you up here. And I think it gives him a pretty wide range because I still have a little haziness about what all that means on both ends. So for me, the low point for Davis was seventh, not quite in that first group we talked about. And I think he can go all the way up to third at the top of the next group.
1: Up to third? Okay. Oh, I like that. So I guess you kind of answered your question in there because what he almost has a little Jimmy Butler in trying to evaluate his offense. Where like, Jimmy Butler, you look, and I think he had like, you know, 56-point game, 42-point game, 35-point game. But then from like game one of Boston, I don't think Butler hits 30 points at all after that point. So it's like, wow, this is a wide range of of scoring output you see here. I feel like Anthony Davis is kind of the same way. I feel like he kind of has a little bit of Giannis syndrome where he can be schemed a little bit. He can fall in love with the jump shot. But the fact is, if the jump shot is going, He's unstoppable. So how do you factor in that that idea that like Anthony Davis with the jump shot going and the roll gravity is like honestly like a top tier offensive player not quite a top tier offensive player but a huge impactful offensive player versus the guy that's like can't really create for himself as much off the bounce shooting like 27 percent on wide open threes over the last few seasons how do you take all of that and put it into one player
0: i think in general he's lost some of his spacing value on the three point shot i think we have enough of a sample to see that both in the regular season and the playoffs The mid-range one is interesting because this is like the second straight postseason he's come into the playoffs and he said, actually, I'm a really good mid-range shooter. I can kind of do this whenever I want. It's interesting because of his health history. Because when he's bouncier, when he's looking healthy, not only do you get these huge, huge, massive explosions defensively, but his offensive shot he looks like he's setting it up a little more easily. It gets back to that point about Devin Booker. Sometimes it's not always about the shot making in a 50 shot sample or a hundred shot sample. It's what I think the player looks like. And so I'm trying to balance all that. I'm still not super impressed by it compared to the other players on this list. He's really the only defensive centric monster. And in that sense, me really thinking very highly of his defensive presence is what gets his range up toward the top of the list. If you thought just a little bit lower, if you said, actually, mm, this is far off from one of the best defensive seasons of the decade, it still might be uh, a defensive player of the year quality, but it's on the lower end versus the higher end. That would bring him back behind Luca, back into that 8, 9, 10, 11 group that we talked about At the top of the list but to me it's a tricky thing to balance but I'm just very very impressed with his defense and I think the offense is at least good enough to be a very clear positive um and then the question becomes you know how positive is it
1: let me ask you a question about his defense then uh in terms of impact throughout the season do you think he was flat out the most impactful defender of the 2023 season
0: including the playoffs including the playoffs yes that he would be number one for me yes
1: yeah. Yeah. So that definitely that moves the needle a little bit because there was somebody in the discord I don't have it right in front of me that wants to know in general about like how much does defense actually move the needle when we're seeing offensive ratings around like 215, 216? Some of these teams are scoring 200, 200. What am I saying? 115. I mean, 115 200. 200. <laughs> this is like Uber Jokic. He's scoring like 315 a game. 115, I was saying. How much does defense actually impact the modern game then?
0: Yeah, we've done a ton of stuff, uh, both in prior podcasts and other content about sort of how defenders are probably becoming a touch less valuable over the years. But I don't think there's anything that suggests in the last year or two, the top defensive seasons aren't seeing these huge on-off swings We've seen really good numbers this season from Anthony Davis, especially in the postseason in that regard. Draymond Green has continued that trend in the last few years. I think Draymond Green was a little worse this year, but I think 2022 Draymond Green was an absolute tour de force defensively. And I think those those guys are still having comparable offensive impact to what we would think of as, say, what we just talked about with Jason Tatum as a great example for me. I think that's the level. Jason Tatum's offense is roughly comparable to Draymond Green or Anthony Davis on defense or something like Mm -hmm. that. And there's a little bonus as well, Cody, which is when you're great defensively, you don't have to worry about sharing the ball. You don't have to worry about scaling and fit as much and things like that. So there's a little extra inherent value that I think defense still has that's helping AD in a comparison like this.
1: Yeah, and then he fit next to a couple of these guys in the Lakers that were able to elevate his offensive skill set as well.
0: I think so, yeah. Uh, Where does that leave us? Number five? Yes. Okay, so now it gets really, really tricky because we have reached a group of three players that I actually changed the order on before this list. I think in every possible permutation, I was trying to read them in the order that I felt most comfortable picking a five and a four, and a three, but we will start at number five. And again, very, very similar final valuations for me compared to the next two guys, Joel and Embiid at number five. And I think Embiid has the widest range of this group because there's still some uncertainty in my head about what to make of him in the playoffs. Both with his health, he's always injured, but then he's always playing through the injuries. And in Boston, he looked really good playing through the injuries, but how much did the knee injury hurt him? And he's a monster in the regular season, but can't quite generate that in the postseason. And then his teammates aren't ideal. And Ben Simmons is forgetting to shoot layups. And what's going on with James Harden in game sevens? And oh, by the way, Doc Rivers is his coach. And I've talked about some of the systemic things that I don't love that he does in the postseason, especially related to Embiid and that offense. So I have a lot of questions still swirling around in my head, which gives me a wider range. I think Embiid could go as high as two and as low as seven at the bottom of that last sort of glut of players that we talked about. But Cody, I feel like relative to a lot of people, I, I still trust a good amount of what I see from Embiid. I still trust that this is a mega impact, two-way player, In the postseason, I don't know if you can ever get like massive, massive offensive explosion playoff series combined with massive, massive dominant flying all over the court defensive series. But I think you can get like 60%, you know, 80 and 8 and 10. And I think you can turn the levers up pretty high in both categories is what I'm trying to say. And if you look at some numbers for Embiid in the last three playoffs... Philadelphia is 12 points per 100 better when he's on the court than when he's off the court, and they're outscoring their opponents by seven points per 100 when he's on the floor. Those are both really good indicators to me. They don't obviously have a backup for him that's anywhere in the same realm, but the fact that they're consistently outscoring opponents when he plays is a good sign. His numbers drop off dramatically compared to the regular season. This year in the regular season, one of the craziest scoring seasons we've ever seen, we did an entire podcast about it, something like 36 points per 75 on true shooting percentage, seven points ahead of the league in the playoffs in the last three years, Cody, that goes down to 27 and plus two. And I think the big thing, and we saw it in both series, but especially the Brooklyn series is how he handles pressure and how his passing actually limits his scoring potency in the playoffs. Because if you're the Nets, and you don't have a great big body to throw at him, you just double him and scramble and whatnot. And in the last two games of that series, he had 13 turnovers and nine assists. I thought he really struggled with those coverages. He's improved a little bit as a passer and as a post-passer in the last two to three years in my assessment. But this is still a weakness relative to the insane strength of his scoring game, post, mid-range, outside shooting, now with James Harden, roll man, short roll, drawing free throws, drawing more free throws, getting free throws, getting to the line and getting free throws. Um, All of those things are way ahead of the passing game. And I think in the playoffs, if you throw schemes at him, much like we've seen with other players, you can still chip away At that overall offensive value. So I think he is a very good offensive player. I think he is a full level ahead of what we just talked about with Anthony Davis. In my mind, I think he's probably a better offensive player than Jason Tatum. The question is, how much better? Where's the range? Do you put him up in the next group of elite offensive generators in the postseason that's the part where the high end for Embiid has him all the way up at two and the low end has him at seven and that's the part where if I have to pick five four three in order I guess I'll go Joel first
1: I'm thinking because I had three guys together at Anthony Davis Joel Embiid and then the third guy I feel like is going to be coming next and I think it's a train between him uh, between Embiid and this other guy where you have these astounding regular season numbers. And I mean like, we're talking about Damian Lillard's offensive like impact metrics. The overall impact metrics for Embiid in the regular season the last couple seasons paint him as a god. We're talking like 99th, 98th percentile in anything that you can look look at. Just a guy that's incredible. Now, what's interesting, and you kind of touched on this a second ago, is that the defense... The defense is uh, really fascinating in terms of how he looks in the regular season versus the playoffs because the offense, like you talked about, drops down pretty considerably from the regular season to the playoffs. But then it seems like the defense sort of ramps up for him. In the playoffs. However, what I find really interesting is when you look at some of the rim protection numbers in the playoffs, they're significantly better than the regular season. When you stack him up to himself, they're significantly better. And you know, I love rim protection, but I also remember watching some of those games, like the amount of times that the Celtics would drive into the paint and just nope on out of there. Like we're not even going to try and attack him. It, it blew my mind. Some of his chase down blocks, his mobility was good, but then you get him out on the perimeter and... You can toast him pretty easily. He's not the quickest. He's not the fleetest afoot. So how do you take like all of this data, especially on defense, and like like is your range for his defense really wide? Do you feel like you're pretty confident on his defense? Where are you on it?
0: I think it's a trade-off. I don't actually have a hugely wide range. I just think he's got immense rim protection value at times. And when he's really engaged and healthy and moving well, he's decently mobile, let's say, within 15 to 20 feet of the basket, coming back and over to help and deter shots. Team shot 14% worse at the rim in the playoffs when he was on the floor compared to when he went to the bench. That is an enormous number. So I think we are talking about a very good playoff defender. But to your point, Cody, I think he can also be stretched out as he is more of a traditional drop big man who doesn't want to use a ton of energy chasing players around the paint or coming way out to the level of the pick and roll because he's not as agile against those fast ball handlers. And I think he can be taxed by the pace of a game or the pace of a series as you have to play 38, 39, 40 minutes or fatigue that can set in Frankly, I think from carrying such a big offensive load on the other end, if he has to do a ton of heavy lifting on offense, I'm not sure in a playoff series at that intensity, if he can uh, apply the top end defensive value. Now, does that mean if he had a smaller role on offense that I would give him a higher defensive evaluation? Would I expect to see better defense? I think a little bit. I think a little bit. So I don't want to overstate this and make it sound like when Embiid goes good on offense, his defense is like, meh. And then when De- when Embiid goes great on defense, he's better than Anthony Davis. No, I think it's, to answer your question, really a trade-off of great rim protection and presence, but much like uh, Brook Lopez, for example, you can't necessarily get the ranginess out on the perimeter. And there are things that you can take advantage of with pull-up shooting, as an example, as we saw in the Celtics series. Another thing I want to point out that I liked, I alluded to it, his partnership with James Harden Mm -hmm. as a pick-and-roll guy. We talked about it all year. Very rare to see your scoring volume and efficiency go up with another player like that who can also score big and have the ball. Embiid, 36 plus 7 without James Harden this season, goes up to 36 points plus 10% efficiency with James Harden this season. So I did like that quite a bit. And he's one of the few players, he almost hit 40% of his team's total points scored while he was on the floor this season. The only other guys to do that, 1962, Wilt Chamberlain, 1988, Michael Jordan, 2019, James Harden, 2006, Kobe, 2017, Russell Westbrook, 1985, Bernard King, and 2022, Joel Embiid. Also did that. There's there's a little teaser that sometimes raw numbers or league changes can influence how you see a player. Actually scored more of his team's points while he was on the floor in 2022 than he did in 2023. Anything else on Embiid before we go to the top four?
1: Yeah, I uh, the injury thing still really it it confounds me because you know you look at last season and I thought his playoffs looked really strong until I'm pretty sure he broke his face against the Raptors, and after that, his playoffs didn't look very strong, and then this, these playoffs, he missed the first two games, I'm pretty sure, against the Nets, and then he comes in, he looks substantially weaker than he did during the regular season. If he comes in next season, and he goes to the playoffs, and he's healthy, and it looks a little bit closer to his regular season performance, would you sort of do some retroactive analysis and be like oh he would have been this good in the playoffs had he not been injured
0: I think a little bit I think that's on the table I think that's also why his range that high end to me is up in that strong MVP it's going to take you all the way up to number two on this list but I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's exactly the case that there have been these little nagging injuries that make it difficult to figure out like Maybe we haven't seen the fully actualized Embiid in the playoffs. I'm also interested to see a potentially a different coach and some slightly different players or a system around him. And honestly, Cody, my hunch with him is some of the raw numbers might look worse if he actualizes, but the overall impact and the depth of the postseason play and value would go up. We've seen that many times in NBA history once the team construction changes around a player that has such extreme extreme skills like Embiid. At number four in this group, again, I had him fifth. I might have even had him third at a certain point. And I think this is actually the one that might draw some of the most controversy. I go with Kevin Durant at number four. This is similar to what we talked about with Embiid I just have a hunch. I just trust some of the elements of this guy's scoring in his game when you put him under a microscope. And before I forget, he also seems to be able to play 40 to 42 minutes a night in the playoffs, no problem. Everyone else we talked about has played about 37 to 40 minutes per game in the postseason. And so when you think of per possession value, those five extra minutes that Durant plays compared to some of the guys on the low end of this list, actually comes out to 10 extra possessions a game, which means if you have a similar per possession value, you're adding about a half a point of value per game. That adds up in a list like this. That adds up in a group like this. And maybe to me in my head, as a tiebreaker, I said, if I have to choose between these two guys, the fact that I know Durant is going to play more minutes, uh, I will go in that direction. The trade-off, is that I think he can play more minutes because he's very thin. And I think we've seen teams move him around a little bit and attack him both offensively and defensively in the postseason in the last two years because of that lack of strength. Again, I'll I'll preempt your question, Cody. This isn't a problem. It's just a trade-off because it allows him to run around the court, score... 30 points per 75. Uh, Per 75 is similar to per game, by the way. 30 points on plus 10% shooting. Absolutely monster scoring numbers. Monster numbers overall. Uh, But in the playoffs, those are regular season. In the playoffs, that goes down to 28 plus 3 in the last three years. Some of that includes... The you know the Bucs series as an example where his efficiency was lower because players were injured and efficiency doesn't always tell you everything that's going on in the game. But there is a drop-off to me because teams can chip away at him in the mid-range. Teams can prevent him from getting to the basket. He's not quite as explosive as attacking the rim as he used to be. And that strength thing comes into play when you can push him off his spot. The other thing about his offense that I think is a negative or a concern relative to the fact that he's just one of the best shooters of all time. We did an entire podcast on that this season, talking about the great shooting indicators that we have over the decades for players. Unbelievable mid-range shooter, 55 to 58%. This year, 58% on 12 mid-range attempts. It's the second best mid-range shooting season we have on record. He's one of the great mid-range shooters ever. But in the playoffs, not only can you push those spots out a little bit more so those mid-range numbers go down, which is part of what's dropping his efficiency, but much like his teammate, Devin Booker, he's not a great playmaker on ball. So if you throw extra defensive attention at him, if you throw late doubles at him like the Nuggets did, if you hedge in the pick and roll and temporarily put a second body on him he's not great at destroying those coverages and attacking those coverages I mentioned it with Damian Lillard whereas someone like Luka Doncic is great at that and I think that's another area where Durant gives back a little value as an on-ball player offensively defensively I think he's still good let's say Um, very versatile can play the three, the four, or the five in small ball lineups. Gives you rim protection. You lose some power size rebounding around the basket. He also can be a good switchable man defender still, but I don't love the awareness, and I think there are still breakdowns when you have a lot of movement and cutting and things like that. So I think he's pretty good defensively, but that reputation can be overblown at times, the totality of that, because he's such a great scorer, because he's still a good passer because he's still a good offensive weapon, and because he fits so well as a guy who can play on ball and off ball in all different areas of the court in many different systems and schemes is a two-way player that is right in this group. I'll put him at number four, and I'll say his range goes from three to six because I have more information on him. It's a tighter range than what we just saw with Joel Embiid.
1: This is the guy... That I wanted to talk about earlier when we were having our Devin Booker conversation, because I feel like I've heard it a few times out in the airwaves that like the Suns team is Devin Booker's team now. He's the guy on this team, all this kind of offensive stuff. And when you look, especially these last playoffs, obviously Booker's offensive game uh, exploded and he looked incredible. Do you see any validity to that, especially in terms of the driving game? Because when I think about that, like Durant still looks good enough in the playoffs, right? But we do see a substantial drop off, especially this season and last season from the regular season to the postseason. And his his driving numbers, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it can't be more than two, right? I think he's driving like 1.5 times per game or 1.5 times for 75. It's a very low number, whereas Booker's getting up in the double digits. I think he's like 12 or 13 drives for 75 or something like that um Durant's the, drives.
0: The yeah. Yes, Durant Durant has 10 drives per
1: 75. What am I am I thinking of rim attempts or is rim attempts around like You're thinking of rim
0: field goals. I'm thinking of yes. rim field goals. It goal is 1.5 in this year's playoffs. Rim field goal attempts are
1: very low for him. So so continue. Okay, so is it possible is it possible do you see any in your ranges? where Devin Booker's offense is better than Durant's because of some of that offensive verve that Booker brings.
0: Yes, it's what I was saying about needing more of that data. I think it is very possible that Booker is actually the better offensive player. As it is laid out, I still think there's a gap between them. I still think there's a gap between them because of shooting accuracy and because of scoring proficiency and creating easy shots and all that. Durant doesn't have that many shots attempted at the rim sometimes necessarily. He still gets to the free throw line a decent amount for someone who shoots so much in the mid-range. But it is a large enough gap for me right now that I'm extremely comfortable. I have a much higher offensive valuation Of Durant uh, compared to Booker. Now, the the mid range shooting, I mentioned, the mid range shooting declines because he's pushed off his spots. 58% in the regular season this year, 56 to 55%, I think, in the two previous years. In the last three postseasons, the mid range shooting is 49% because of some of the things I talked about. That's on 12 attempts every 75 possessions. That is first in the playoffs in that stretch. And I think it's symptomatic of him not being able to put quite as much pressure on the rim where I disagree with people. I think who have him a little bit lower at this point is I still think that offensive package, I still think the totality of that puts him up in this range as an overall player.
1: Okay. I have a philosophical tangent that maybe I want to touch on with this because I think to me a clear distinction between these two between Durant and Booker is when you look at the regular season Booker's not touching those numbers he's nowhere near what Durant is able to do I mean Durant was flirting with like you said 30 plus plus uh 30 points per 75 and plus 10 efficiency which I'm sure I referenced it at some point in the season it's been done by very few players across an entire regular season and so my argument would be that if you're able to sustain that throughout a regular season you're actually setting up your team to have a higher seed in the playoffs, and therefore you're actually giving your team a better chance to win a championship. So, I guess the the other side of the coin is if Durant's playoff numbers looked exactly as they did in the regular season, like if you just transposed them, would that affect your offensive evaluation at all? Or does the fact that he has such eye-popping regular season numbers, does that up your evaluation of his offense?
0: No, it's a great point. I tend not to think about uh, an impact like that on moving the seed. If you know, It's rare to have a guy who's like 60% in the regular season and then 48% in the playoffs or something, but it would be one of those things like being able to play extra minutes or something that has a small influence because it mathematically does make you more likely to have a slightly higher seed. And so in that sense, the the weight of the regular season still has a little influence in this conversation when we're talking about how good I think the player is because there's still noise in a smaller postseason sample. And much like just the idea of trusting what I'm seeing or betting on players. I still think we're talking about an elite offensive player in Kevin Durant, who's one of the best offensive players around and that puts him in this group. The last player in this group for me, who actually felt very tricky to rank relative to these other players, but not relative to himself in past years was Steph Curry. So Steph Curry goes at number three to me. He is in the two to six range. Um, I do think there is a case to be made that he can get up above the number two player we have on this list. And I don't think I can really get a much lower than six. Essentially he scored 30 points per 75 on plus 8% true shooting this season. That was actually much better than his last regular season in 2022 when he had the shooting slump that we discussed. If you look at his impact numbers, They're very similar, 4.7 box plus minus last year, 4.8 box plus minus this year, plus 13 on off last year, plus nine on off this year. If you look at something like offensive Raptor from 538 plus 6.2 last year, plus 7.5 this year. Last year when he was on the court, this might surprise some people. The Warriors' offensive rating was in the 78th percentile with him on the floor. This season when he was on the floor, it was in the 90th percentile. So when I look at the historical shape of Steph Curry, and I'm going to point to his Greatest Peaks profile and prior videos and podcasts we've done on this, prior top 10 lists, I just think the value of his offense in his prime as a hybrid off-ball, maniacal shooting machine who runs around and provides a ton of gravity and his on-ball game that I think has improved and has provided this extra resiliency, this bulletproofness, When you get to the playoffs, I have a hard time distinguishing between this season and last season, Cody, I think he's in a very similar range. And I think that's part of the spirit of this list. Last season, I did not have him number one just because he won finals MVP. And this season, because they were knocked out in the second round, I do not have him sixth or seventh or something like that. I'm trying to find the middle ground and figure out what has exactly changed in the skill of the player. This season, more drives per game, he was more efficient. In the mid-range, he was more efficient. He shot the three-pointer, more efficient. He was used on ball a little bit more. His time of possession this season was 27% in the regular season, and then it jumped way up to 33% in the playoff. Excuse me. It was 27% last season. It went to 33% this season, and then jumped way up to 38% in the playoffs. So he was asked to do a ton more on ball. I thought that culminated with a brilliant performance at the end of the Sacramento series. But of course, his overall postseason wasn't quite as good because his shooting in the postseason wasn't quite as good. Now, is that noise? Is that a slump at the wrong time? Or goes back to what I was saying with all these other players about getting into your shot? Steph Curry's older, he's losing his quickness as he gets older therefore we expect the percentages to drop on the same level of difficulty because it's harder to get into that shot with the same quickness comfort ease and space with the defenders guarding you. So that's where I have a little uncertainty about how much he's actually dropping off from 22 to 23. But otherwise I see them as very consistent offensive seasons. Defensively, I think he was better last year. I just think he was sturdier, stronger, sharper, more engaged on that end. Still a pretty good defender for a guard, but I level him back just a little bit defensively to land where he is here third.
1: So a couple of things that I find interesting about Curry is like you said, maybe it, it, it might be some noise how he shot during the playoffs. I think something that really hurt were his free throw numbers during the playoffs because if you look at the Kings series, he shot five point five free throw attempts a game. You go to that Lakers series, go start at two point eight free throw attempts Per that, game.
0: That's the Anthony Davis effect, right? That's yeah. the kind of number we need. It's hard to figure out how do you value defensive players? You see something like that, that's Anthony Davis standing in the paint and just taking away, choking off that high value area where you're going to get a lot of those free throws. Keep going.
1: So I think what's really tough about Curry here is, you know, uh his his on court offensive rating during the playoffs was like 115.8 which in you know relative to the other offensive titans isn't great but it's the highest of anyone on the warriors and his on off for the warriors was like plus 22 during the playoffs so clearly like very much an offensive engine for a team that as was talked about a lot didn't have quite a lot of creators that they could trust in the playoffs now also his on court like you said his on court offensive rating this season was like 120 he had a huge run of that before 2020 hit, like I think 2017, 2018, 2019, all of them were like 121 offensive rating. And obviously it was more impressive then when league-wide offensive rating wasn't quite as high. Uh, it was it dipped last year, though, and we talked about it with the slump. So I want to ask, you say he's he looks like he's somewhat of a continuation from last year. Uh, are you retroactively thinking about the slump? and kind of rethinking how good his offense was last year? Or do you actually think this year's offense was maybe closer to his 2019-ish range as opposed to his 2022 range?
0: I didn't really buy the slump too much last year, especially with what we saw in the playoffs. So I still think they're similar. I am in a little bit of a need more data mode going forward because he's older and because I'm trying to figure out how much decline is taking place on the back end of that aging curve. And with free throws, I thought you were going to mention the fact that he's only shot 85% from the free throw line. In the last two postseasons, huh. typically we see older players that are great shooters just go to new, le- you know, 90, 91, 93%. Is that because of fatigue? Is that because of the legs? Is that because of all the effort it takes and the recovery is harder as he gets older? That to me is still a question. At number two, Cody, it's your guy, Giannis Anadukupo. I don't know how much time you want to spend on him, but the overarching idea for me is that during the regular season, his defense didn't look quite as sharp and maniacal as it has in the past. Now, how much do we adjust that, you know, without getting to see the quote-unquote healthy Giannis for the playoffs? The playoff Giannis... We never really got to see him come in and see if he's just saving defensive value in the tank to release this motor in the playoffs and go nuts. So this would be yet another example of where I would need more data and want to look back next season to see if it is an age thing, you know, just a decline in motor and energy or engagement on defense or something. Still a great defender in my assessment, but not quite as sharp as he was last year. And then I think he was a touch worse offensively because there are still these big offensive questions in my head, even after all these years about Giannis and how to use him the best and what his impact really means on offense. So the mid-range and the, and the shot selection in last year's playoffs, he took 10 mid-range shots per 75 possessions and made 33% of them, 10 At 33% in this year's regular season, that was down to seven per 75, but that's still in the 86th percentile in the league. And he made them at just 32%. And it confuses me that he either A, can't get a move or something that increases the efficiency of these short mid-range shots, or B, that he's taking so many short and long mid-range shots and he's unable to hit them. And of course, then there's the three-point shooting where he's one of the worst volume three-point shooters of all time and continues to shoot them in the high 20s or whatever it is. And all of this chips away at his efficiency. In the 2022 regular season, he did have a blip up. I think it looked like he was adding a little turnaround jumper in the mid-range and he hit 42% of his mid-range shots up from 36 and 38% in the prior season. So if he doesn't really have any touch around the mid-range area, that does chip away a little bit at his defensive, or excuse me, his offensive value in my assessment. If you look at his overall offensive box plus minus in our model, it goes plus four. This is in his MVP season since 2019. It goes plus four, plus four, plus three, eight, plus 4.4, maybe in part because of that mid-range spike we saw last year, and then down to plus 3.7, the lowest of this prime period for him. He was back to pressuring the rim a little bit more. He looks like he has monster playoff impact numbers. Uh, In the last three seasons, his scoring is 30 points per 75, plus 2%. And, you know, his team's like 14 points better per 100 when he's on the court really big one number impact metrics, but we see a Bucks team that is consistently winning in the playoffs with defense and never provides great offense. And it still kind of has me wondering in my head, what is the offensive range of this guy who I see in the historical lineage of two way, great players, David Robinson, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, where is that? Is it an all-star offensive value? Can he push into the conversation for some of the other players we've had? I still am not entirely certain with him. So Giannis is my number two with a range of one to five.
1: I'm going to build up to a point that I don't want to make publicly, but I have to. In in the this spirit...
0: This is being recorded. I just want you to remember that.
1: In the spirit of objective analysis, I'm going to build up to it. But for, I'm going to say something nice. It's like the critique sandwich where you say something nice and accept him to end with the bad part. So it's like a bottom open face sandwich, which sounds terrible. Uh, but... The f- something that really helps my analysis of him and the fact that I think he's a pretty solid ceiling raiser, I think he's talked about a lot as a floor re- raiser, but something that shows me a ceiling raising is if you go back to 2021 and you look at every minute that he, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday have shared the court together in the regular season, they're like a plus 11.6 net rating when those three are on the court since 2021. 20, uh, In the playoffs, when those three on the court, that actually goes up in 658 playoff minutes to a plus 12.6 net rating. So this guy can go next to other high-end talent and have titanic impact, really build on them to get these teams at some of these all-time sorts of levels, right? But in fairness, Ben, earlier in this conversation, it seemed like we brought LeBron down a little bit because he came into the playoffs and didn't perform as well because of this foot injury. To me, the same thing happened with Giannis during these playoffs where he came in, got injured and his performance was down from what I actually think should have been his regular season type performance. We didn't actually see what I consider to be second best player in the league, Giannis Antetokounmpo. So how, how do you factor that in? Are you, are you bringing in the back injury and whatever else against the Heat or are you kind of wrapping in mostly what his regular season looked like?
0: I will make an adjustment for health at the end of this in a second. So to me, I'm evaluating him on what I see as being healthy and then saying, when you play in the playoffs before you're healthy, I'm taking that at face value. And then as you come back, much like with Embiid, I'm trying to figure out uh, when are you going to actually be healthy again? Oh, in his case, he was eliminated. We didn't get to see it. So it's a very strange situation historically. I think for a player to have what seems like a very small short-term injury on a dominant team with a dominant regular season as a team and as an individual, but then not advance and get eliminated. We typically expect that player's team in the first round to advance more than 90%, maybe 99% of the time, depending on the situation, and they did not advance. So Cody, I am trying to do my best based on what I think healthy Giannis is. I'm going to take a little off at the end here when we adjust for players health during this season
1: okay and then just comparing him with another guy straight up defensively whose defensive impact did you actually have higher him or Embiid for these this season
0: I still like Giannis a little bit more defensively than Embiid I I think I always have um and even though I took a little bit off of Giannis compared to where I've had his defensive peak it's still Giannis to me by a uh, small but comfortable amount let's describe it that way
1: Okay, so in the ballpark, but Giannis still has the edge.
0: In the ballpark, but Giannis still has the edge to me. Yeah. Okay,
1: I should have you repeat that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to repeat it in my head.
0: (laughs) And that leaves, of course, at number one, uh, Nikola Jokic. And I think the big question that people have with him is where does his peak rank? Um, Let me share some thoughts on that. His regular season box plus minus this year Was plus nine. I think it's the best single season I've seen from Jokic. I think we've seen this kind of level of play since he got in great shape in the bubble and they made the run to the conference finals in 2020 21 MVP, 22 MVP, 23 MVP. I think he's moving better on both ends of the court than he ever has. And I think that's a big deal. Uh, well, I don't know, a big deal, but I think it's improved, uh, you know, the offensive and defensive margins for him in the last few years compared to where he was two or three years ago. And the other thing there, Cody, his touch around the basket, it's always been unbelievable, but I think it's the best it's ever been that's, that I've ever seen this season. So with that in mind, I said he has a box plus minus of plus nine. In the last decade, only two other players in our model have gone over Eight. James Harden in 2018 and 2019 was uh, plus 8.5 and plus 8.3, respectively. And Steph Curry, that 2016 unanimous MVP season, was plus 8.8. Jokic himself did it in 2021 and 2022. He was 8.6, and he's up to 9. That means 2021, 2022, 2023, the three-year regular season box plus minus for Nikola Jokic, plus 8.7, is... The best three year regular season box plus minus in NBA history in our model. Uh, plus 8.7, the best three year regular season box plus minus ever. The previous record holder was Michael Jordan. He passes, uh, you may have heard of him, Michael Jordan. The only other players over eight in a three year stretch, the aforementioned James Harden and LeBron James. Plus nine for a single season is tied with 1991 Michael Jordan. So we are talking about some crazy rarefied air. I mentioned the touch and the improvement of the touch. Jokic shot 61% on his mid-range shots this season. 61% on seven mid-range shots per 75 possessions. That is the best mid-range shooting season in the last decade with at least five mid-range attempts. I think unofficially, we only have this data going back a couple decades. To me, unofficially, it's the best mid-range shooting season of all time. We've only had five seasons over 56%. Kevin Durant was one of them that we mentioned at 58% this season. Jokic last season was 59%. He's up to 61% this season. And Jokic also did it in
1: 2017
0: (laughs) at 59%. Uh, His on-off, the difference between his team's performance when he was on the court versus off the court, was plus 22 this season. In the beginning of the season, we had a video where we talked about how, at least at that point in time, his team essentially had the best offense in the league when he was on the floor and the worst offense in the league when he went to the bench. That is a huge contributor to the 22-point swing per 100 possessions that we see when he is on the court versus off the court. That is the third-best Mark of the last decade, one of the best of all time, Uh, almost tied with that 2016 Curry MVP season and behind Draymond Green in 2016, who was better. Um, I could just keep going and going and going. 30 30 points per 75 on plus 10% efficiency last year. He was 27 plus 12 this year, 12% ahead of the league. We're talking about almost 70% True shooting, that means all your free throws and all your three-pointers, they're the equivalent of a 70% two-point field goal attempt. Some people can't even shoot 70% around the basket on layups. Then we get to the postseason. In the last three years, uh, he has the third best, not the best, the third best all-time box plus minus in our model in the postseason behind Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Now the big question with him is this plus minus data where in the last few years, his team is only a couple points per 100 better when he's on the court versus off the court. How much of that is noise? How much of that is his defensive weaknesses in the past? How much of that is playing a team like the Warriors last year, where Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole can stretch him versus not being in a situation where he has good teammates to Uh, move and protect and have a horizontal game around him like we saw in this run. I think it's a little bit of noise, Cody. I think it's a little bit from the defense, but I think if we were to continue to go forward with what we saw in this year's postseason, we would see better plus minus numbers. So to me, the totality of that, I mean, the man has missed 13 games in the last two seasons when his starters have been healthy In those 13 games, the Nuggets played at a 28-win pace. The rest of the time, they are at a 53-win pace. I think you are talking about one of the greatest offensive seasons in NBA history. I think you are talking about a good candidate for the best offensive player in NBA history, certainly on my short list of the best four or five offensive peaks that I've ever seen. And I think that his defense is around that neutral-ish Ballpark, the quick hands, the great positioning is a little more agile this year. He positions himself on pick and roll, some really good help plays in the playoffs, good defensive rebounder, still going to be vulnerable to certain things. You still want a lot of defensive help around him because you're giving up that massive value defensive position at the center. And the combination of his offense, his all-time great offense. And neutralish defense, very similar to someone like Magic Johnson in profile. And I think to me, probably in that like top fifteen, top twenty all time peak range, I think him versus Magic Johnson is an interesting discussion, just as a, a point of comparison. Nikola Jokic, number one in my list this year.
1: So I know I think in previous seasons you ultimately graded out Jokic's defenses being slightly negative, especially looking at last year. Yep. Do you think when you say neutral, is that kind of like a neutral positive you're leaning, or are you still kind of on the negative side?
0: I, no, I just give it a neutral. I, I okay. brought him out of the negative. It was a small change from last year, but I think I saw enough on the court to say he was a little bit improved defensively, and I think that improvement is reflected in me calling him neutral. Now, when I think about that, I try to bound the range and say, if he's negative, how negative would he be in a bunch of average situations or a bunch of reasonable situations? And can he provide positive defensive impact relative to a lot of typical starting centers? Um, I go a little, you know, I slide it a little bit in each direction. So if you wanted to say he's a small positive, I wouldn't argue as long as you don't say he's a healthy negative or a healthy positive. I think we're going to be in the same ballpark with with how we view his defense.
1: And I think for anyone out there that's like shocked that you're not saying that Jokic is an all-time peak, like literally number one, two, three, four, five all-time peak. And it is that defense part of it because some of these other guys that came up with those impact metrics, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, these guys had the monster offensive impact that's... Either, you know, in the top five that we were... I think we actually talked about it. We talked about some of the greatest offensive seasons of all time. They're also in that list, but they're also giving you pretty substantial defensive impact as well. So uh, unless Jokic can really ramp that up or somehow bring his offensive game another level, which I'm not entirely sure is possible at this point, um, I don't see him really getting up into that rarefied air.
0: So Jokic's range was one to two for me. Honest is really the only guy that you could, I think, say has an argument over him this season using the criteria that we normally use. Now, I said I would adjust for health at the end. Jokic, of course, isn't really impacted by that since he was so healthy this year. Giannis is impacted by that. He slides down a little bit, but I think his lead over number three, Curry, is still probably enough that... Again, Cody, it goes back to what I said. Typically, having that back injury for a couple first-round games, I don't think moves the needle quite enough. So he could go to three or four behind one of those players in that group, but I still think he's right around that two spot. So we'll leave him to Steph Curry, three, Kevin Durant, four, Joel Embiid, Five the the knee thing. I thought he actually played and looked pretty well physically with the knee. I am trying to uh, bake that in. Luka Doncic goes to six. Jason Tatum seven. Jimmy Butler eight. And Anthony Davis would fall back to ninth because of your point earlier, Anthony Davis missed so much time in the regular season that when you don't have that big of a lead, it actually changes the mathematical likelihood of what seed you are, which changes the probability of the opponents you play. You could argue that happened to some degree with the Lakers, but of course they made it to the conference finals, so it might not have really made a difference in this particular season and Damian Lillard 10th. There's one more player I want to talk about and that's Kawhi Leonard who was coming back from an injury and we never got to see really actualized Kawhi in the playoffs outside of two games. And to me, he looked extraordinary in those two games. I have said this before. I am a big believer that Kawhi's offensive peak was with the Clippers. He added passing. Let's look at his mid-range percentiles. They're unbelievable. In 2019, He shot 46% from the mid-range. That was in the 90th percentile at the time. This season in 2023, he's up to 51%. It's steadily improved in the mid-range. Wide open three-point shooting. He was 43% from 2017 to 2019. In the last three years, he's up to 45% on his wide open three-point shots. His pull-up three-point shooting in 2019, he was at 33%. In 2023, he is up to 36%. In the last three years on his pull-up three-point shooting, I think he knows how to use his body better. I think he's more in control as a dribbler. I think his economy and efficiency of turnovers is at an all-time low. In the playoffs, he just gets to his spots whenever he wants. The defense isn't the same. We've talked about that before. It's still pretty good. So we're left with this thing that's very difficult to judge because we have a two-game healthy playoff sample after a year of ramping it back up. He looked great in the last two months of the regular season. My hunch, my bet, if I have to bet, is that he's still great. But I'm hoping he's at the same level of health and um, sort of overall play next year so we can contextualize this better with another playoff run, knock on wood. After January 20th, He was 47% on threes, 60% true shooting. The Clippers had a 123 offensive rating with him on the court. And Cody, if I had to pick, based on my hunch, based on what I saw in that small sample, I would put Kawhi in that group of players we talked about from three to five. I think he's at that level.
1: I completely agree. I actually... so, So there's two different ways you could phrase this question. And if I had to put him in the top 10... I would have slotted him at number four, right? I think very highly of his game. Everything that you talked about is right on point. But it's like two phrasing of the question, all right? So if you'd be like, who do you want going into a playoff series versus who's at their best or who who is the best at their peak performance? Because if we're just looking at who's their best at their peak performance, I think Kawhi is probably like the fourth best players in the league. But if it's actually like, who do you want going into a playoffs, in terms of just like... (laughs) you can't trust him to play in a playoff series. You can't trust him to play in multiple games in a row. He doesn't make it that high for me, right? And this is where I was talking about, like we need different scales in terms of these lists because he like doesn't fit onto a traditional like linear uh, sort of list, right? He needs to be somewhere else that's like, well, we have to have all these other given assumptions. So uh, I struggled with Kawhi because of all of those. He
0: is the Tesseract in this example. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) he's a multidimensional ranked player who could be 4th, 3rd, 7th, unranked, 28th. It depends on what prism you look through at the end of the day. We have one more piece of business to get through, and that is our Patreon Patreon voting, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Thank you so much to all the members over there. They give us a great pool. We got 82 different... Ballots to look at, asking them to rank the top 10 players. They know our annual criteria. The results of that, Cody, counting backwards from 10 to 1. At number 10, they had your man, LeBron James, number 10. He got 48% of the possible vote share, and he was as high as third on some ballots. He was as high as third. At number 9, Jimmy Butler got 57% of the possible vote share. He was as high as second, had a couple second place votes. Most of his votes, however, were from the six to 10 range. At number eight, they went with Anthony Davis. He was also as high as second. Most of his votes were from the four to nine range. At number seven, we have Jason Tatum. He got 86% of the possible vote share. He was as high as third. Most of his votes were from the four to eight range. At number six, Kevin Durant got 89% of the vote share. Most of his votes were from the four to six range. He had some seven and eight votes as well. So you could say four to eight, but he has a huge group of uh, votes uh, are clustered around four to six. And that leaves a top five of Luka Doncic, At number five, he was on 98% uh, or 98% of the ballots. Have I, I, I've been saying vote share this entire time. And I mean to say the percentage of ballots uh, he's been on. So you'll just, just have to excuse me on that one. It's been a long show. Um, 98% of ballots, Luka Doncic. He got 52% of the vote share. If you're curious, most of his votes, he was as high as number one. He had one vote at number one. And most of his votes were in the three to seven range. At number four, we had Joel Embiid. He was on 99% of ballots, picking up 59% of the vote share. And uh, most of his votes were from the two to five range, had some sixes through eights as well. That leaves the top three of Steph Curry, who was on 98% of val- ballots. He picked up 76% of the votes. He had one first place vote and he had a ton of second and third place votes, along with some fourth and fifth place votes. We have the same top two, Giannis Antetokounmpo on 100% of ballots, picked up 83% of the vote share. He had three first place votes and a ton of second and third place votes as well. And Nikola Jokic, number one, he got 99.4% of the vote share and he picked up 78 of the possible Eighty-three or seventy-seven of the possible eighty-two first-place votes that we had. So um, there you have it: the top ten players of twenty twenty-three. Cody, any final thoughts or questions before we put put this one out into the universe for people to have
1: no reaction to whatsoever? Two questions because I don't think this this podcast was long enough at this point. Uh, number one: how close is Damian Lillard in terms of the Patreon vote? And number two. Who was 11th on their ballot? 11th on
0: their ballot was Kawhi Leonard. Uh, Booker was 12th. Damian Lillard was 13th. Lillard got 8% of the vote share. You needed 14% to pass LeBron James. Kawhi had 13.6.
1: Yeah. Overall, good, good job, Patreon voters. I
0: think yeah. that was pretty solid. Thank thank you for your contribution. As always, if you want to support us, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, you can join that community. It's a really fun community. You can ask questions to some of our guests. Uh, we often participate in sort of polls and feedback like this for things that we use on the show uh patreon.com slash thinking basketball just the best way to directly support us and you get access to all the stats databases that we use to research these shows and that we've been referencing throughout uh Thank you, as always, for listening to this one. I'm very interested in your feedback. This is the first time we've tried this as a as a top 10 podcast. Cody's shaking his head because I don't want your feedback about the accuracy of the list. I want your feedback about the uh, idea of whether you like this format in a podcast instead of a video. We tried something differently this year. So... Let us know that. Of course, if you're in the YouTube, you can comment down below and let us know. Uh, Otherwise, thanks for listening all the way through. And of course, of course, I hope you're having a great day.